As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Brennan to the Boca Chile, From Lummi to La Push And from the lordly Salda to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. As happy as a butter clam, when tides are high I sing. A grateful ode to Puget Sound, the land of everything. I love it from Tulalip to Puyallup, Squim and Pisht. And to the Dosey Wallops, where so many times I fished. From Brennan to the Boca Chile, from Lummi to La Push. And from the lordly Salduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C. Join me as we explore the rich and diverse history of Washington State. I've decided to call today's episode the Washington Firestorm of 1889. Not in a literal sense, but at the end of this episode, I'm sure you'll understand why. What do Seattle, Ellensburg, and Spokane all have in common? An easy answer? They are all cities in the Evergreen State. Another somewhat easy answer? One might say that all three are their respective county seats. Both true, and I'm not going to argue that. The answer I was looking for, though, was that all three had their business sections completely burned to the ground. The somewhat strange thing about it all? It all happened within a two-month span during the summer of 1889, right as Washington was about to join the Union and become the 42nd state. The Great Seattle Fire It all started on the afternoon of June 6, 1889, at around 2.15 in the afternoon. A 24-year-old Swedish immigrant by the name of John Black was working as an assistant at the Claremont & Company cabinet shop. This shop was located on the second basement level of the Pontius Building, which was located on Front Street, now called First Avenue, and Madison Street. John was heating up a pot of hardened glue on a stove, which was fueled by wood chips that were soaked in turpentine. John added some more chips to the stove and went to work about 25 feet away. After a few minutes, the glue itself caught fire. When another employee of the shop failed to smother the flames, John decided to throw a bucket of cold water onto the fire. As would happen when one uses water to put out a grease fire, in John's own words, when I throw the water on, the glue flew all over the shop into the shavings and everything take fire. Soon, the entire shop was engulfed. Remember now, the cabinet shop was on the second level of the basement. Everyone evacuated the building safely, I'd like to add. I'm going to quote from 
Seattle historian Clarence Bagley to put the scene into a little more perspective for you. North of Columbia Street and on the west side of First Avenue was a row of frame structures mostly two stories in height and with a sawmill, lumber yards, and many wooden sheds between them and the wharves. Even the pavements were of plank. Streets, as well as buildings, were generally on posts or piles and well above the ground or water, leaving a space below through which the fire could travel without hindrance. The fire quickly spread underground to the Denny Block, a dilapidated wooden structure that went to Marion Street. Among the tenants of the Denny Block, a liquor store by the name of Dietz and Mayer. Due to the fire moving underground, the whiskey barrels stored in the basement of the liquor store burst due to the heat of the flames, causing flaming alcohol to spew in every direction. Soon, the Crystal Palace Saloon and Opera House Saloon were aflame. The alcohol in the three establishments helped to rapidly accelerate the spread of the fire. Within 20 minutes of the first alarms, the entire west side of Front Street between Marion and Madison was an inferno. An interesting side note here, when the first firefighters arrived on the scene, they couldn't spot the location of the fire. They decided to pry up some of the plank sidewalk on the west side of Front Street and were met with a rapidly spreading fire that was located below street level. Soon, the fire reached the east side of Front Street, spread by the cribbing underneath the plank street. At this point, it almost seems like it was destiny wanting the city to burn to the ground. To kick the city when it was already down, the supply of water to fight the fire was severely lacking, and soon this became very problematic. During this time, Seattle got its water from a privately owned company called the Spring Hill Water Company. This means that they were in charge of placing their own hydrants, which were few and far between at this point in time. Roughly one hydrant for every other city block. Even some of the pipes that fed the hydrants were made of hollowed-out logs. Some of these pipes even burned in the fire. When the fire quickly spread, more hoses were attached to fight the fires. Limiting the already limited water pressure to the point of not working at all, attempts were made to pump water from nearby Elliott Bay to fight the flames that were encroaching on the waterfront. But in another unfortunate turn of events, the tide was out and the hoses were not long enough to reach the side of the buildings that had caught fire. To make the chaotic situation even more volatile, the bystanders watching this unfold began to harass the firefighters and heckled them. Around the time the water supply was dwindling, northwesterly winds coming off of Elliott Bay picked up drastically, and soon the mill was lost, as well as the opera house. To make things worse, the fire chief, Josiah Collins, was out of town, ironically at a firefighting convention that was being held in San Francisco. The acting chief, James Murphy, was apparently very distraught. This led to Seattle's current mayor, Robert Morin, assuming command of the fire department, if you could call it that. Mayor Morin, in an attempt to create a firewall and hopefully end the destruction of the fire, ordered that the Coleman block be dynamited. The plan failed, and soon the fire spread to the wharfs, and soon started its ascent up 2nd Avenue. By this time, the fire had been raging for about an hour and a half. 
Most residents were coming to the conclusion that downtown could not be saved, so they were gathering what items they could in an attempt to save what they could. Some residents hired wagons to load their belongings onto ships before they pulled away from the wharves that would surely catch fire. On an interesting note, the Seattle Times was able to save most of their files and books, which were loaded onto the schooner teaser. The smoke could be seen from a far away as Tacoma, which had been called in to help with the fire, and itself gave $20,000 in the relief efforts after the fire. Even cities as far away as Portland and Vancouver, B.C. were asked to help, even though it would take hours for any help to arrive. The fire had crossed 2nd Avenue and was approaching 3rd. Trinity Church, which was located on 3rd Avenue, quickly burned to the ground and the fire kept creeping ever so closer to the city courthouse and the important documents and records it housed. Attempts were made to spray the building with hoses, but as I mentioned earlier, the water pressure at this point was non-existent. So only the first story was adequately dampened. A gentleman by the name of Lawrence Booth climbed to the top of the courthouse and proceeded to dump buckets of water onto the sides of the courthouse. His effort was not in vain, though, as the courthouse was saved along with all the important documents inside of it. Perhaps inspired by Mr. Booth, bucket brigades were formed to save the Boston block and the home belonging to Jacob Levi. Even Henry Yesler's home was spared, this time, though, through a very unorthodox approach. It was entirely covered in wet blankets and therefore did not sustain any damage from the fire. The fire kept spreading, and soon it was approaching Yesler Way. Mayor Morin, brilliantly, decided that the shacks in that area must either be torn down or blown up in an attempt to create another firewall. Like Morin's first attempt, this second one failed, and the flames soon jumped the buffer, and Olive Skid Road was shortly engulfed. Morin ordered an 8 p.m. curfew that was to be strictly enforced, and he also went about ordering all saloons to remain closed until further notice. The fire would eventually burn itself out 13 hours later at around 3 a.m. After all was said and done, some 25 city blocks, roughly 120 acres, had been decimated. Every mill, every wharf, between Jackson and Union Street had been destroyed. No records were kept of deaths, but it's to be believed that nobody perished as a direct result of this blaze. Though some one million rats met their fate over the 13-hour span, practically solving Seattle's pest problem overnight. It is estimated that losses totaled nearly $20 million. Nearly 5,000 men lost their jobs and thousands were left displaced. Eight hours after the last embers were extinguished, some 600 businessmen met to discuss the current situation and where to go from there. 200 special deputies were appointed in to prevent widespread looting, and martial law was declared for the next two weeks. Wooden buildings were banned in the area that had burned, 
resulting in more modern and large stone and brick buildings taking the place of the wooden buildings that burned so rapidly. Some Seattle streets were raised up to 22 feet from their previous point, helping to level out a hilly city and providing us today with what we call the Seattle Underground, made famous by the late Bill Spidel. Within a year, Seattle's population had gained an additional 20 to 40,000 people. This increase in the population made Seattle the most populous city in the Evergreen State, a title it has yet to relinquish. 465 buildings were also raised in that same year, and most businesses had been reopened. The fire led to the city taking over control of its water supply, drastically increasing the number of hydrants found in the city, which themselves would be supplied by larger and more modern pipes instead of the commonly used wood pipes used pre-fire. After the fire, most of Seattle's volunteer fire department quit, citing harassment and threats received while attempting to put out the flames. The Seattle Fire Department would be established on October 17, 1889, a little over four months after the Great Seattle Fire. Recollections of the Great Seattle Fire According to Mrs. Sanford, who was also known as Kate McGraw, she was the daughter of the second Washington State Governor, John Hart McGraw. Well, Professor Ingram kept all the children in school, and then... We were everyone cautioned to go straight home, and I went straight to the fire and stayed until a policeman found me. According to an unidentified woman, there was a big crowd. Half the people in town were down there at the fire. The man who started the fire was a rumor in our house, and his name was John Back. He was the one who started the fire, and they were going to lynch him if they found him. According to Miss Earl Jenner, I watched the fire from 3rd and Madison, I don't know why I wasn't in school, but I stood there with Mama and we watched it burn in Grandpa Bagley's church as second in Madison. According to Mr. Frank R. Atkins, as usual, whenever the fire bell rang at number one house, all of us kids would go immediately down there to see what was up. After the bell rang, we all left Mrs. Shorey's duplex house on 3rd Avenue, right next to Columbia Street. The progress of the fire was very evident by the huge billows around. At that time, I was working in the abstract office of the Osborne, Tremper, and Company. I realized the fire was progressing. It had jumped Marion Street in the Coleman block and saw that the fire was going to continue on. The books of the Osborne, Tremper, and Company were uppermost in my mind. They had three lot books and two land books being the foundation stock of the abstract business. And it, it didn't take me long to run up there and tell my half-brother, Eben Osborne, that we would have to get rid of those books right away. He had just purchased, or the firm had just purchased, a big safe that was warranted fireproof. I said, Eben, I'm going to take those books up to our house at 4th and Columbia. Ed Shremper quite agreed with me. So he grabbed two books, and I the other. We took them up there. We made another trip down. By that time, Eben had started to put in the safes, the lot, and the deeds and mortgage records. All the merchants in town there, well, nearly all of them, were commandeering trucks and express wagons. Especially do I remember Chester Clary's big store in the Sullivan Block. He, fortunately, had a truck there, 
and you should have seen him pile that truck with the more valuable goods that were there in the store. The Ellensburg Fire A devastating fire rolled through Ellensburg on Independence Day of 1889, which some say also wiped out the city's hopes of becoming the capital of the soon-to-be state of Washington. Some even took this a step further and blamed their rival city, Yakima, which also had hopes of becoming the state capital of starting the blaze. But there are no facts to back up this conspiracy theory. Over 10 business blocks were leveled, and 200 Victorian homes were burned to the ground in this nearly four-hour blaze. The fire is estimated to have destroyed more property in less space than that of the Great Seattle Fire. It began around 10.30 p.m. in a grocery store, which was located on Main Street between 4th and 5th. Soon, the flames spread and the fire was out of control. The strong northwesterly wind experienced that night did not help the situation. Due to the timing of the fire, the town's supply of water was already pretty low. Due to it being midsummer, and despite the valiant effort of the town's people to beat back the flames, the town burned. It is estimated that the fire cost $2 million in damages. In today's money, given inflation, that's about $58 million. According to an article I found on Crosscut, and I quote, There is a surviving witness, a scorched and blistered mantle clock in the collection of the Kittitas County Historical Museum. The clock is said to have come through the fire, according to a note on its back, there is even soot still inside. The clock is stopped at the time the flames reached it, 11.07 p.m., and I quote. At the dawn of the next morning, the townspeople saw Ellensburg in ruins. The notable survivors? The lynch block, which was built by John Nash the year prior for $20,000 and was the sole surviving building in the downtown area. The Ellensburg National Bank and the City Hotel also sat among the burned ruins. Being upwind from the flames, the City Courthouse also survives the blaze as well. As was common, following the Great Seattle Fire, and now following the Ellensburg Fire, a tent city was quickly erected, and soon business was back to an uneasy normal. The arrival of the Northern Pacific in 1886 meant that getting supplies to rebuild the town was far less laborious than it would have been just three years prior when the arrival of the rails. It would have likely involved hauling the necessary supplies in by tr pack train or by mule team. Yakima, Ellen's rival in the ill-fated competition for capital status, even sent help in to the aftermath of the fire. There are actually several other theories on how this conflagration was started, including, according to the director of the Kittitas County Historical Museum, errant fireworks, insurance fraud, faulty electric lights, striking miners, vagrants displaced by the Seattle fire, disgruntled Native Americans seeking revenge for a white man beating a Native American woman, disgruntled Chinese laborers, and even a disgruntled circus that had tried and failed to set up their tent on the edge of the town in the high winds that were blowing that day.
An interesting side note, while it took four hours to burn the town to the ground, it took about four months to build the town back up. Walking among the historic buildings left standing in Ellensburg, it's easy to note the impact the blaze had on the city. Most buildings, you will notice, were either built in 1889 or shortly thereafter. The cause of the Ellensburg fire has never actually been determined, though the point of ignition was. The Spokane Fire Exactly a month after Ellensburg burned to the ground, it was the Lilac City's turn. Known as Spokane Falls at the time, it's now simply called Spokane. The fire is believed to have started in a lunch counter named Wolf's Lodge, and it quickly spread to the rest of Railroad Alley. Railroad Alley, in downtown Spokane Falls, was an enclave of wooden structures where lodging, booze, and cheap food could be found by transients and travelers alike. As we have come to experience here in Washington State over the recent years, Spokane Falls was shrouded in a haze from a wildfire that was currently raging in the Coeur d'Alene Forest in the Idaho Panhandle. The fire was exacerbated by the fact that when the Volunteer Fire Department tried to fight back the flames, the water pressure was too low. Sound familiar? Seattle and Ellensburg had the same low water pressure problem when they tried to fight their fires. To add to the chaos of the situation, the water superintendent, the only person who truly knew how to operate the system, was conveniently out of town. Did I say chaos? In an attempt to fight the spread of the flames and to act as a sort of firewall, a decision was made to dynamite several brick buildings that stood in the path of the flames. It worked out about as well as one would expect. When the brick came down, the wooden structure of the building remained. The structure was quickly engulfed, and the fire soon spread throughout the entire business district. Shifting winds and the chaos that the dynamiting of the buildings brought meant devastation for the financial core of Spokane Falls. The fire quickly spread and didn't stop until it reached an adequate buffer, the Spokane River. After the final embers were doused, 32 blocks of the city were destroyed. There's an urban legend that blames Irish Kate, whose real name was Kate Barrett. She was a young prostitute for starting the blaze. It is said that she had an altercation with an unwelcome customer, which resulted in an oil lamp being knocked over and starting the fire. This story could never be verified, though. Several years after the fire, sadly, she took her own life. Soon, relief for Spokane Falls started rolling in. Help from all over the region came. Even the Empire, Inland Empire's distant neighbor to the west, Seattle, itself still reeling and rebuilding from its fire two months prior, sent aid. Another distant neighbor, one to the southwest, Portland, also sent aid. So much relief aid was given, in fact, that the elected officials of Spokane Falls were accused of stockpiling cured meats in the basements of their homes. The leaders were jokingly nicknamed the Ham Council. As in Seattle and Ellensburg, the displaced businesses and people of Spokane Falls moved into canvas tents until the reconstruction was over. I wonder how many celebrated the news that Washington was granted statehood from the comfort and privacy of their temporary canvas tent. Did you notice a theme between the three fires and the responses from each city? Low water pressure 
an all-volunteer firefighting force that was not given the proper means to fight the fires, and wooden buildings left over from the booming pioneer days that were built quickly, usually very poorly, and without safety in mind. All three cities quickly rebuilt, most beginning the process as the last embers died out. None chose the easy way out, and instead they simply built atop the ruins. A forced urban renewal for all three, so to speak. We were given the Seattle Underground, which most of us Seattle-raised kids took field trips to in our grade school days. Bill Spadel practically built his career from it. Some would say Ellensburg could have been the state capital if not for their fire, but that would have been wishful thinking. In my opinion, that plum was already betrothed to Olympia. It had the infrastructure, the location, and not to mention the fact that the territorial government had been located there since the founding of Washington Territory. When the announcement was made on November 11th that Washington had been granted statehood, the sound of construction, the clang of hammers, and three cities picking themselves up by their bootstraps could be heard in the quickly rebuilding and growing cities. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of the Evergreen State History Podcast. Don't forget to check out my group on Facebook, Historical Images of the Evergreen State. Episode 2 will be released in two weeks. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for listening. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing Stilliguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck. And Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace. For a shack on Puget Sound There's Chimicum and Stillicum Where spouts the gooey duck The singing Stilliguamish And the swirling Skookum Chuck And Moclips and Copalis Where the razor clams abound A little bit of heaven Is a shack on Puget Sound A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound.